What's up, everybody? I'm TJ. And I'm Kelsey. And we are the, the Nashville, Nashville Wine Duo. Duo. Horseshoe Bend. Yes, we're so excited to do this podcast today. So we are here with Ron and Kim Thomason, Correct. who are the owners of Horseshoe Bend. And uh, we came out here a year ago? Yes, it was when TJ had gone through the surgery for his ankle. And so he, they reminded us that he was on crutches at the time. <laughs> um, so it must have been the fall of last year. Then I thought it was summer, but you got that yeah, it must have been the fall. I remember it being really warm, though, and it was beautiful. Yeah. So we're very excited. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Ron. Well, thank you for coming out. Yeah, and then Kim is going to kind of be on the sidelines. She's going to be pouring us a couple drinks to try the wine, and then they have some really exciting new cocktails. Well, I don't know how new they are to you guys, but they're new to us because we haven't had them yet. Um, you didn't have them last year when we were here. So, um, yeah, but Ron, we would like for you to just to kind of um, – talk about your background and how this all got started and where we are obviously like located. <laughs> well, we are located in beautiful Hickman County, Tennessee, Northwest portion out near Coble, Tennessee, about 15 minutes off of I-40. So not too far from uh, the modern world, <laughs> <laughs> but um, my background is I'm a, I'm a physician. I'm a pathologist. And so um, as a pathologist, there's laboratory medicine. And in laboratory medicine, there's a lot of chemistry, biology, those sorts of things. So um, I became a wine enthusiast as a hobby, as a hobby. Uh, probably more than 10 years ago, I started making wines as a hobby. Uh, there's a lot of science in winemaking, but there's a lot of art in winemaking too. And medicine, the practice of medicine is much the same way. It's science, but it's, it's also an art. So um, we bought this uh, farm out here in uh, the Coble area of Hickman County in 2008. And at that time, there were blueberry bushes already on the farm. And about the time, about that time, I started, uh, you know, playing around with winemaking. And um, I decided, well, I've got blueberries here, so let me see what I can do with a fruit wine. And it you know, it's trial and error. You make mistakes, but you try to get better. And uh, over time, I started making a lot of different fruit wines, fruit from our berries. I planted more blueberry bushes. I started, we started growing blackberries. Um, and then I could buy fruits locally. And so just uh, continued with the hobby and would share those wines with neighbors and friends and family. And um, started thinking about, well, you know, could we turn this farm into maybe something a little more in in the, in the field of winemaking, maybe take this hobby and turn it into a business. So, um, I, I guess that idea started maybe coming into play about 2015, started thinking about, okay, if I, if I start to think about retirement or pulling back from the medical practice, could we turn this into a small business? And, um, we just continued to chip away at it and eventually it happened. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so. the property is gorgeous. Um, there's, there's a scenic view where you can see a bridge. What bridge is that? That is a bridge over the Duck River, and I don't remember the name of it, but the Duck River is very prominent here mm -hmm. in Hickman County. It basically crosses the county. And um, here on our property, we, we are known as Horseshoe Bend, 
because the river turns and makes a full horseshoe on our property. And this road that we're on used to be called Horseshoe Bend. So um, that's how we get part of our name, Horseshoe Bend, because we are on a horseshoe bend of the Duck River. We're basically bounded by the Duck River. Very cool. Oh, wow. So you grow blackberry, yes. blackberries and blueberries, correct? Those, those two fruits. Okay. Uh, we have about a thousand blueberry bushes. And um, uh, when we had all of our blackberries, we've lost some over time, but we had about 2,000 vines. I think we're down to maybe 1,500 vines at this point. And I've also got um, a small orchard of um, um, muscadine, red muscadines. And mm. I had our, we had our first harvest of those last fall. And I made my first muscadine wine from our muscadines last fall. And it will be on the shelf sometime later this year. Oh, cool. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. So why don't you kind of just describe, like, I guess, the wine that you make. Um, what are you trying to represent in your wines? Uh, yeah, like kind of your wine catalog. Yes. So most of them are fruit wines. And um, the reason I chose that is it's, it's easy to get good fruit locally or regionally. Um, I guess in this modern time, you can also get really good grapes if you want to, you know, get them from the West, West Coast. But the, the local fruits are easy to get. And, uh, and so that's one of the reasons I wanted to concentrate on fruit wines. And I just enjoyed making them and uh, enjoyed the fact that they're a little, they're not as common mm -hmm. um, as the grape wines, the classic grape wines. So um, one thing that I, I would say, we're, we're a small batch winery. Um, my typical batches of wine will yield about 500 bottles, which is very small for a commercial operation. But I also uh, would say that my fruit wines are authentic in that I start with ripe fruit. That's my uh, starting um, product, uh, product that I use to make the wines. Uh, typically, I will freeze the fruit, or crush it, crush the fruit and freeze it for a period of time. And that allows me to build up a volume that's uh, adequate because you don't harvest all the blackberries at one time or all the blueberries at one time the way you do grapes. You, you pick them over a period of time. So I crush them and I've got a, uh, a large freezer, walk-in freezer, where I, I place them. And then I go back and, and pull out maybe five to 700 pounds at a time. And I will either ferment the entire, the full berry that's been crushed or I will press off the juice and ferment that. But I do start with fruit rather than purchasing a concentrate or a juice from, from a factory. And, and that does make a difference. It's, it's a little harder, I think in the process because you've got a lot of pulp that you have to deal with and you have to over time, find that out and, and end up with a clear wine. Um, and that's a little more challenging than if you start with juices or concentrates, but you end up with a, a different flavor profile also, if you start with the authentic fruits. And then you also have, you use vegetables too, right? Well, if you want to refer to them as vegetables, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> technically, I think they're still fruits, right. at least most of them that I play with, but I do have some odd wines. I, I have the, probably the, uh, the one that started it was tomato. And uh, we're not the only ones in the, the country that make a tomato wine, but it's not common. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it makes an interesting wine, oddly enough. It's not for everyone. And uh, even for me, it's not a wine that I enjoy just as a glass of wine. But if you pair it up with the right foods, it, it can complement foods quite nicely. We do have uh, customers, though, that, that love it 
to the point that they're happy just to get a glass and sit on the porch and, and consume it uh, as an isolated beverage. Hmm. Um, so it, it, it all comes back to the, you know, the person mm-hmm. and what they like. And, right. And so, and, and from that, I, I decided, okay, what else could I do? And, you know, a lot of folks like the cucumber flavor. You see a lot of folks that like to place cucumbers in their water mm-hmm. and get the cucumber flavor. And then there's people, I didn't realize this, but some of my customers have told me that there's cucumber Gatorade, you know, all these, so people like that flavor. And so I didn't know when I made my first batch of cucumber wine several years ago, I thought, well, this is kind of a subtle f- flavor, really. It may not come through at all in the winemaking process. I have no idea. So I made a small batch to see. But the cucumber flavor, whatever chemical is involved in creating that flavor, really comes through the winemaking process very prominently. So the cucumber wine is very much cucumber in flavor. And the people that like that flavor tend to love that wine. And that's Mm -hmm. what I tell them before they even taste it. Do you like that flavor? And if they say yes... I said, well, you're probably going to like the wine. And typically I'm right. So, <laughs> and it's, it ends up being a fairly popular wine also. Um, and then uh, I guess another one that's a little bit unusual, uh, I make a pumpkin wine. And that's again, an authentic wine. It's not easy to make. Um, it's made from pumpkin flesh and pumpkins are very rich in starch. So to get that wine to clear, I actually have to heat the mash, the, the crushed pumpkin with some water and uh, add some enzymes to break down the starch, or I would, would never get it to clarify. So it's a little more challenging to make that, but it ends up making a, a very delightful, light-bodied white wine that has a uh, pumpkin finish. I don't spice it in any way. Um, it's a delicate, but it, it's quite nice. And it, it's interesting to find people that, you know, when you have the tastings up here, how people migrate to different mm-hmm. wines, and there are a number of folks that we we found that, oddly enough, are mostly dry wine drinkers that end up liking the pumpkin wine, even though it's semi-sweet. Mm-hmm. They they find it nice in a in a way that they can tolerate a little sweetness, whereas they're tip, typically drawn towards dry wines. It's so fascinating. Yeah. We've tried a lot of these wines too, and I'm the tomato. You did have like a jalapeno tomato, right? Yes, and yeah. that was I, incredible. Yeah, I do. I do have a uh, a batch right now that just finished fermenting that's uh, in storage clarifying that I am going to take a portion of that and infuse that with jalapenos. Mm. And so that I will have a, another, we call it kicking keg County mater juice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I remember one thing too, when we tried these wines, um, we were, we were fascinated that how many of them come out clear. Yeah. And yeah. want to describe why that is. Well, um, you know, I use some clarification processes uh, during the, uh, as the wine is getting ready. I, I usually wait for them to clear and some, some are much more readily, some much more readily clear than others. For example, blueberry, oddly enough, within a month after fermentation tends to be brilliantly clear. And I really never, I've never had any problem with it throwing sediment later on, like once it's bottled. Others, uh, a little more challenging, peach. For whatever reason, I think it's the pectin content has a, it takes a lot more time to to get to the point that it's brilliantly clear. And uh, I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm in, interested in not only it being brilliantly clear at the time of bottling, but I would like there not to be any sediment formation mm-hmm. later on. Sometimes that happens with wines, uh, even some great wines from made from the uh, classic grapes 
uh, will throw some sediment over time. And that's not considered necessarily a flaw in winemaking as long as the wine is still clear. But it is, it's not something people typically want to see. Yeah. So it is something that I, and when I make a wine for the first time, I learn its characteristics like cucumber. Cucumber is one that's just not likely to throw a sediment. It's not, not got a lot of protein that could, you know, fall out later on. Whereas something like peach, it is more likely to do that. So I have to approach the, as I learn these fruits from making mm -hmm. several batches, approach them differently. And I try to take the process to a point where I end up with something that's going to be not only brilliantly clear, but also stable in the bottle over time. Cool. So that's something you shoot for is that brilliantly clear? I do. I do. Okay. And most of my wines, if you look, you, you'll see that. Yeah. And then the other question is, if they're in the bottle for six months, do you see any little mm. sediment that forms? And, and that some of mine, you will. I, again, I tell our customers that it's not a flaw. You, if you see that, it's not going to change the character of the wine in terms of the flavor profile. But it is something that I'll watch for and try to think about how can I keep that from happening the next time I make a batch. And I've over time have gotten quite night quite good with that. So mm. I'm seeing that less and less. <laughs> yeah. I can definitely tell your attention to detail is <laughs> pristine. It's like, spot on. Yeah, it's spot on. Yeah. But we, we felt like that when we came out here and talked to you last time. I was just like, this guy is just like, you're just so, you're so smart, but so creative. You know, I can tell you, you have a lot of that artist mindset too. Well, thank you. Like you Appreciate were saying, that. like you love the creative process mm -hmm. of it. So you're bringing in your old profession into this new venture. And I love how like the two worlds have like collided. Mm -hmm. I think it's very cool. <laughs> Um, well, and it's cool that you get to do it together too. Yeah. Oh yeah. You yeah. know, Kim likes to be in the background. She's not a camera person. Yeah. But <laughs> she is the marketing genius behind and the, really a lot of what goes on. I make the wines, but everything basically beyond that, she takes care of all the social media, which is very well done. Mm -hmm. I, I think it you've probably been on our, yeah. her Facebook, Instagram and all that. Yep. She does very nicely. She's very community communicative on the, uh, on those platforms yeah. with, with the customers. She names all the wines. She designs all the labels and uh, which they are all very, they're nice names and they're very nicely done labels. Mm -hmm. So, uh, she takes care of all of that, which is fine with me because I have no interest. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're very, we compliment each other yeah, very well. Totally. Yeah. So did you, um, when did you guys decide to do the Airbnb? Cause you have an Airbnb. Well, we had a, uh, we, when we built our house in 2010, we built that with the idea that maybe our house would even become a bed and breakfast at some point. So we had this idea that we might want to get into that, uh, arena. Um, but over time we, you know, I don't know, sharing your house with guests yeah. and even do people want to share a room in a house where they're other. Mm -hmm. So we, we kind of modified that idea. We had a, uh, we lived in Franklin when I did a lot of my medical practice and would just come out here on the weekends until about uh, six or seven years ago when we moved out full time. But when we decided to move out here full time, we kept our town home. We leased it for a while. And then we decided, you know, when we build this tasting room, maybe instead of having a town home in Franklin that we're leasing, we should just sell that and use the proceeds to build a couple of Airbnbs out here. And that way we would have our guests staying locally mm -hmm. and that, and generating that and managing it ourselves rather than having a, um, 
you know, lease company mm-hmm. take care of things. So that's how that, that sort of came up. We had that idea with a B and B, a bed and breakfast, but it kind of morphed into B and B's over time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Kim manages all of that too. So she, all the Airbnb side of this, and she does a, a great job with that. And people, she's got five stars on Airbnb and people are always rave about how, uh, beautiful, beautifully decorated mm-hmm. and the out, just the way that everything is put together for mm-hmm. those B and B's. And then we've got the beautiful scenery that people can enjoy when they're mm-hmm. here too. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the tasting room is literally like within, I mean, a couple feet. It's right. not very far away. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I love the A frame in here. Like I just, I don't know. It feels so like rustic and like, uh, it's so quiet out here. Oh, like if you're looking for just like room. a peaceful, you know, weekend away with like beautiful views and, I mean, it's just everything you could ask for if you mm-hmm. want to get away and go somewhere. And you have two Airbnbs, right? One, the cabin that's yep. next door to the tasting room. And then we've got the loft over the wine making facility. Okay. That is more of a, an open area that facilitates families or groups of people. Yeah. It's got four queen beds. So it's uh, many times it's a girls retreat weekend or families. Um, but yeah, people enjoy staying there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dive in. So y'all started doing these cocktails and Kim made us, um, these are your two Visa, very popular mm-hmm, ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so explain how you came up with the concept for these two cocktails and then we will try them. Sure. Well, this, uh, this is, you know, Kim and I are up here basically every weekend. Um, every now and then we'll have to be out of town for some reason, family interest or whatever, and we'll have to get fill-ins. But this is usually our what we come up, this is, we like to present what we do. So we're up here. And so you listen to your customers. And so a lot of the consumers, uh, not a lot, but several folks over time, different folks that like the tomato wine asked me, have you tried to make a Bloody Mary with this? And um, it took a, probably about that question to hit me about four times until a, a light went off. Oh, well, if you could do that, and it came out nicely, you could sell those here. So that's where the idea started, listening to the customers. And um, I I basically uh, did some experimentation with a lot of Bloody Mary cocktail mixes and trying to come up with the right proportion of wine to mix so that it would end up with a nice uh, version of a Bloody Mary. We call it a Horseshoe Mary. And I settled on six ounces of wine with four ounces of a mix that we picked out. That's very nice, the high-end Bloody Mary cocktail mix. And uh, I liked it. I brought it up here and presented it to customers. And we a lot of folks like Bloody Marys. And a lot no, of I love them. Kelsey loves yeah. so Bloody Marys. So let's try this and then we'll <laughs> She's talk been, about it. I'm surprised you lasted know, so long not to try this. I know. So let's try this one and then we'll move on to the other. I'm like, oh, I don't want to wait. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. It's so interesting. It's really good. Well. Um, I like the spice. The, the can spice. I try, can I try it? <laughs> it's medium spice. I didn't want anything too hot. We we have uh, pepper sauce on the side if people want it spicier, but I didn't want it. I didn't want it overly mild either. But what I find that people comment on the most, you know, we're basically using six ounces of wine in place of the shot of vodka. Right. right. So that's how you're getting your alcohol. That's good. And that's the good. the tomato wine is semi sweet, so it has some sweetness. It's adding a subtle tomato flavor and. The tomato wine is not just the tomato flavor. There's a little, people always talk about different things that they sense in the tomato wine. And a lot of folks talk about it having a little smokiness. 
some talk about having having a kind of a they asked me did you put any herbs in here you know they're getting some sort of but no it's it's just straight tomatoes but that wine adds that but it also adds a little sweetness which i think that people comment on they like the way the sweetness and the medium spice kind of mesh with one another yeah in the mouth totally so i get that mm-hmm. and i like that it's just a different play on a bloody mary mm-hmm. you know no i really enjoy that I do too. And I want to open these crackers to cleanse my palate, but it's all crinkly in the microphone. Oh, just do it. Everybody <laughs> okay. understands. I did it. I did it. Yes. Very, very good. I can understand why people like it so much. I love it. That's our number one selling cocktail. I believe it. Mm-hmm. Really right. good. Let's talk about this one. So this one is the cucumber farm teeny. And again, Kim, Kim's a namer. She farm teeny was a nice name for that because the way that I make that is I use um, the cucumber wine. And then you're thinking about, well, what flavors would go well with cucumber? Because as I mentioned, the cucumber flavor really comes through very strongly in the cucumber wine. So the, um, the thing that I, when I was looking at this company crafted cocktails, where we get the Bloody Mary cocktail mix, they had this basil lime martini mix, oh, basil lime cucumber. That's, that, that's a good combination. So I, I got a sample of that and started again, playing around with proportions and I came, I settled for up here. People can change the proportions if they wish, but I settled on three ounces of the mix, the basil lime martini mix with six ounces of wine, place it over ice and then garnish it with a lime. So, uh, this is the cucumber farm teeny. Okay. <laughs> mm. Oh my gosh. That's really, really good. I could just sip on this all day. <laughs> Very refreshing. That's what most folks say. They talk about how refreshing. Oh my gosh, you're going to love that. I love cucumbers. Mm, That is really good. That that mix is typically used to make a drink known as a gimlet, Mm -hmm. which is either gin or vodka with the basil lime martini mix. But it it really works well with the cucumber wine. Yeah, it tastes like summer in a glass. It really does. That is so good. Really nice. I love that you guys are doing this. Mm. Wow. So those have been selling really, I mean, really well. Those I can have, see why. Yes, they do. And then um, the other cocktails that we've came up, most of them are made with a cocktail enhancer known as a shrub. And I was mentioning to you earlier, shrubs, I found out through education. And it really, again, wasn't my idea. When I settled on the Bloody Mary cocktail mix from this company, Crafted Cocktails, I noticed on their website, they had a whole series of cocktail enhancers known as shrubs. And they were what piqued my interest. They were in the same flavors as my fruit wines. Mm. So they had a blackberry shrub, a strawberry shrub, a pear shrub. And I'm like, whoa, I wonder, since the bloody, the horseshoe Mary is doing well, could I do something with these other wines? Mm -hmm. And so, um, again, I got them to send me some samples and just played around with proportions and came up with recipes. These really enhance the flavor of the wine. Yeah. They're bitters and used typically with rum or vodka and club soda to make liquor drinks. But if you take a small proportion of that shrub, which is a vinegar that's been infused with fruit and then sweetened in some way, in this case with agave syrup, small amount of that with six ounces of wine, top it. I use Sprite. You could use ginger ale, club soda, Prosecco, but top it with something that's sparkling, Mm -hmm. even a little fizz. It's a really a nice drink. 
And at some point today, we might make make you one of those too. <laughs> Very cool. I we've been. I mean, we've been to a lot of wineries, and I do think that this is like very unique with the cocktails and it's like so smart because I think it's even a good way to like, if people don't want, you know, just wine, then they can have a different option. Mm -hmm. Well, and I was thinking too, when he was describing like the pumpkin wine and everything, Mm -hmm. like you think of like the beer, the beer world Mm -hmm. and how you have a pumpkin beer and you have these kind of elements to those kind of drinks. It's like, I love the, the approach to, you know, clearing your mind of like what wine is right. it's a grape yeah. you know what i mean yeah. and saying no wine could be so much more oh, totally. obviously and yeah. you're doing it right yeah you know and if people just kind of come in with an open mind like i was blown away with how clear your wine is you know you look at yeah. like a pumpkin wine and it's it looks like water and i'm just like mm-hmm. how does he do that you know and then you taste it and it's like wow um so if you just approach it with an open mind i think man it's incredible well i know that you're gonna try something that's like very forward thinking, I think, and really Definitely. unique and new, like new in so many ways to the wine industry because people, you know, don't realize like these fruit wines, like they're not back sweetened with like the juice and the concentrate and things that you would buy. Like you're just making it from the straight up, just the fruit. And, um, I think that that is very unique, um, to y'all. And I haven't seen that any, anywhere else. So well, I, again, though, I give a lot of credit to our customers mm-hmm. because it's just listening to what people say yeah. and they give you ideas and, um, you know, you just go from there yeah. and if it works, you bring it back forward to the customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Well, we're going to talk about one of the fruit wines too, right? That Kim had just poured for us. Okay. This is the Tennessee Waltz, Kim. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Tennessee Waltz, um, Kim again, named this and the reason it's named Tennessee Waltz is it's a 50% mixture of blueberries and blackberries that are then fermented together. So it's not a blend of the blueberry and blackberry wine. It's actually a blend of the fruit prior to fermentation. And I chose to a little batch of this. I cho- chose to try it because blackberries are very acidic. Mm. And in the winemaking process, that acid has to actually be cut or you would end up with a wine that would be way overly tart. Blueberries, on the other hand, are a little lacking in acid. And in the winemaking process, to get the the acid level up to a range that's pleasant for the mouth, because you want a little acidity, um, you have to add some acid in in the process, the fermentation process. But I knew from my measurements of those two wines that if I were to put these berries together 50 50, the acid level would not have to be adjusted. Mm. by me. It would be in the right zone to be pleasant in the wine. And so that's, I chose to do it from a chemical side, mm-hmm. but it ends up making a unique flavor. Mm. If you, if you taste the blackberry or the blueberry wines, neither of them end up tasting like this. Mm. They're good in their own rights, but this is a different flavor. And um, it turns out that this has become over time, our most popular wine. Very, very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's the uh, number one selling wine that we have here. And I like, um, and you do get like acidity, but it's it's in a really nice, nice way. Um, and like, it's just the fruitiness is just this like nice, nice touch of fruit. It's just not this like over, you know what I mean? It's just so light and delicate, and I love it. One again, it's not like this big sugar fruit yeah. bomb in your mouth. You know, you're getting a lot of flavors, and you're able to 
really taste. Yeah, like I, I think people just, I mean, I don't really, I, I'll always drink wine that is like sweet just to like know things. Mm-hmm. But like this is this kind of wine, like I could really, like I could really drink it, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not overly sweet to me. Or, I try to leave them in a in a zone that would be considered semi sweet to low off end, dry kind yeah, of yeah low end sweet. Mm-hmm. And what I find when new customers come and taste our wines, that's one of the things they comment on is I was thinking this would be really sweet, mm-hmm. and I'm I like the fact that it's not overly sweet mm-hmm. because I think a lot of folks just think fruit wines are going to be sweet wines. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have to be. You, What I strive to do when I'm at the point of back sweetening the wine is balance out the alcohol and the acid and the fruit. Mm-hmm. You want the fruit flavor to be there. You want the acidity to be toned down, but still present. Mm-hmm. And you want the alcohol to have take an edge off the alcohol mm-hmm. so that it's not the first thing that you sense. So those are the, you know, I try to balance them out so that you have the right feel in the mouth, the right uh, taste in the mouth. And then what's like your percentage um, alcoholic? What are they usually at? Most of these uh, are finished in the range of 11 to 12%. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then we have this muscadine wine. White muscadine. White muscadine. Um, I purchased these. This was my first attempt at muscadine wine. I uh, purchased these muscadines from a farmer out to the west of here. And um, so, you know, I I was interested in how it would come out based on the fact that it's the first time for, you know, for this this particular grape. But it's been well received in our um, in our winery. It's uh, it's sold very well. And um, I've got a red muscadine that will, from our muscadines that I'll bring out later this year that we harvested last fall, but that we actually do have a cocktail with this one also, by the way. Oh, nice. <laughs> Always try to come up with a cocktail to pair with it. We call it a muscadine mule. Muscadine mule. Oh, and it yeah. is uh, six ounces of this wine with a half ounce of lime juice and four ounces of ginger beer. Hmm. And um, it's quite, again, quite, quite popular among our customers here. Yeah, and I think muscadine is so interesting. I mean, from what I've learned about it, it seems that it just thrives in the South. It does. Mm-hmm. So um, the the soil, the climate in the South, muscadine um, just does really well, and and so that and you know makes it not as difficult to yes. produce it. I uh, I had initially many years ago thought, well, I'll try to grow some wine grapes, and so there is a grape that's grown in this part of the country known as Norton yeah. or Cynthiana. Mm-hmm. Yep. And supposedly it's a grape that is native to North America mm-hmm. and it does not suffer from as many of the, uh, uh, diseases, yeah. the fungal diseases as classic wine grapes. So I, th- I said, okay, yeah, that'd be the one I grow. And so I, I put some vines out and had them going, but I did find that they, it still was quite susceptible to mm. some of the fungal diseases. And I'm not big into all the spraying and management with trying to keep. Yeah. So I finally at some point gave up and uh, there's a guy that helps me. And I, t- I told him, I said, I, I just want you to go through and cut everyone. He said, what? You know, cut them all down. I said, yeah, I'm taking them out. I'm going to replace them with muscadines. So I did because, and you know what? I don't spray my muscadines with anything. Seriously, I, all I do is a, a little uh, pruning in, mm-hmm. in season, and then also the, obviously the big pruning. 
um, in the fall, in the uh, winter, late winter. But uh, I, I've never sprayed, not even with insect, even insecticides. No insecticides, yeah. no fungicides. I don't spray my black. The blackberries probably could use a little of that from time to time, but I just refuse to do it. And blueberries are not susceptible to any of it. I never have to use fungicides or insecticides, which is good because I don't like using those chemicals and yeah. I don't have to worry about any residue on my fruit either. That's awesome. Well, I remember like when we talked to you last time we were here, I remember you saying that and I was just like, are you kidding me? So like you're getting this product that like you can feel completely safe drinking and you know mm -hmm. it doesn't have any anything on it because wine can have, I mean, so many things added and so many, I mean, even some of the wineries we've talked to where they're like classified organic or things like that, um, they still, they still spray like sometimes up to like mm -hmm. 27 times, right? you know, and it's, they, and they have to because of all these diseases exactly. and stuff that happens. So I just think you're like, well, I, I just don't, I don't want to do that personally. And so I'm going to have this product where I just, I don't do that. So, well, that's true for, again, for my fruits that I grow. Now I can't say that for the, um, the fruits that I purchase, yeah. but they do come from reputable orchards yeah. uh, that sell to the public. And I assume that they're using good practices. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope that they are, but for the fruits that I grow, at least I know 100%, there's no insecticide or fungicide used. That's kind them. of amazing mm -hmm. though, because they almost make it seem like that's impossible. It's not, well, I just know it's not impossible for blueberries and uh, muscadines and the blackberries, as I said, they could use some help against some of the fungal diseases, mm -hmm. but I just, I just don't do it. I, I don't have, I don't like reading the, <laughs> the label mm. on the back of those chemicals mm -hmm. and seeing all the things that you need. You almost need to be in a hazmat suit for you to, to, yeah, yeah. to spray it. Yeah. And then also you do, do wonder what kind of residue there might be there on so, yeah. Wow. This muscadine, I grew up with my aunt having muscadine in her yard. She had like a vine of them. And while I mowed her lawn, I would sit there and just pop, <laughs> eat like eat them. <laughs> this tastes just like the grape. Yeah. I mean, just like you pulled it you off pulled the it vine off. and it's ended like little manipulation. Right? I mean, mm -hmm. it just tastes like the grape. Like I love it's it. really, it's really good. It's, it's been popular. And again, you get the level of sweetness. Mm -hmm. It's not way sweet, but it's, nope. you know, it's left in the same zone pretty much as mild. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It tastes just like the grape. Oh, well, I it's think amazing. too. I'm just like, it's if so you're good. living in the South, I really do think you should try muscadine and definitely try this muscadine because it's really, really good. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I, I, there's something I love about drinking a wine that, you know, the Tawar, it, this is where it lives and it does mm -hmm. really, really well. I've actually heard they're doing a lot of muscadine in China which is kind of crazy, um, <laughs> but it does so well in the South. So if you haven't tried it yet, I highly recommend trying a bottle from Horseshoe Bend. It's a very good example of a nice, really good muscadine. Well, and especially what Ron was saying too. I mean, low intervention, yeah. like this, yeah. this grape is, you know, if you want something that is natural with mm -hmm. little intervention, and uh, you're concerned about that, yep. like muscadine and a lot of people is a are great concerned about option, that. you know, and yeah. it's, it's grown really well here in Tennessee as unlike, you know, other places too, like Georgia and, and everywhere. So yeah, I love it. I love the grape. I, I think do too. You, I think it's a beautiful representation of what muscadine wine should really taste like. So Thank you. well done. Well done. Yeah. So tell us what's on the horizon. Um, Y'all just celebrated your two years being open and um, you kind of have some new plans. Kim was saying before we started this. So yeah. What are some of the, well, plans? I think, um, the, the plans for this season, this summer, 
is we've uh, upped our event schedule so that we are at least once a month having um, live music and a food truck on one of the weekend days. We did that for the first time last fall and it, it was received very well. So we decided, well, we'll, we'll try to do that a little more frequently. So uh, one thing that we needed to do to accommodate that was to increase our parking area. And we, uh, we just finished with that uh, this past week. So we've got a very nice parking lot over there that can accommodate up to 40 or 50 cars. The other thing that we wanted, another thing that we're uh, trying to modify a little bit this year, one thing that's been very uh, good for us is this, um, this company known as Harvest Host. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar mm-hmm. with them, but there it's a, it's basically a B and B type thing for RVers. So RVers can, uh, t- take their RVs to places other than campgrounds. And, um, they, they find it's usually something like a winery or a brewery or a farm, some, something that's got an attraction with it and has a place where you can accommodate the parking of an RV. Yeah. So this larger lot is going to give us the ability to accommodate um, several RVs at a time. And, um, those folks enjoy when they come here, not only the, they have the, uh, the winery that they can visit and do the tasting and, and get products, maybe get a cocktail, but, but we've also got this beautiful view of a scenery in middle Tennessee, the river, the river Valley here. And so it's very peaceful. It's just yeah. a very peaceful, rustic rural setting that people can enjoy. So we're increasing the number of, um, RVs that we can accommodate on any given night. So that's another thing that we've uh, modified. And then we're basically just looking to see how this works out over the, over this season in terms of, okay, if, if this does go well, should we work to have a a better way to present the uh, performers and, and, um, shelter our guests during these events? In other words, should we have a larger pavilion that we could, you know, build for, for those purposes? Um, and we're going to, we're going to make that decision after we see how, how, how things goes. go this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's great. And, um, yeah. So anybody listening to this, you need to come check this place out. We will be talking about it on our Instagram yeah. and sharing the podcast soon. Um, is this, are we in, what's the exact city or town that we're in? We are Centerville, Tennessee. Centerville, it's, Tennessee. We're on the Centerville mailing address. Okay. Um, yeah. we, again, though, if you're, uh, in Middle Tennessee, the quickest way to get here for most people, unless you're south of here, but for most people, they come in on I-40. That's the way I- we came in. Yeah. I-40 West, exit 148, and we're about 15 minutes off the interstate. Yep. So, uh, the last two min- the last uh, two miles may seem like five. Yeah, it's a little windy. <laughs> the, fir- the first time you do it, yeah. but it's it's uh, it's not hard. Yeah. It's two miles. No, it's an highway. easy drive. It's beautiful. It was actually a really easy drive. And yeah. I feel like um, there might not be as much traffic coming out this way as there is on other interstates. I could be wrong, no. but I don't feel like there's. Uh, it is definitely true that I-40 on the west side of Nashville is the, le- le- the least density. Yeah. Less density compared to going north, east, or south yeah. out of Nashville. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, we're, we're fortunate that way. They were about yeah. an hour from where we are in Franklin. Right. 
and really the drive was like super short. We listened to Dateline because I love Dateline. <laughs> and um, yeah, so this has been great. The wines are awesome. I mean, I love the cocktails. You've been great to talk to. Thank you, Kim, for pouring. Thank you, Kim. Um, yeah, and like we need to we need to bring out some people out here and stay at the Airbnb. We're gonna and, do like, it. We're gonna, gonna plan a we're gonna plan a getaway. I know we are. We're doing it happening it's happening thank you so much for talking to us thank you ron thank you kim everybody check out horseshoe Horseshoe bend Bend. we will be sharing their instagram yep um in the notes yep so cheers everybody yes cheers thank you